Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Doris E. Cohen to this episode of the College Commons podcast. Dr. Cohen is an author, clinical psychologist, and psychic, and she's an internationally renowned clinical psychologist and psychotherapist who's been in private practice for over 30 years. Her unique approach uses psychotherapy, hypnotherapy, past life regressions, and dream analysis. Dr. Cohen, thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure to participate. Before we dive into your work, can you give us a brief sketch of your Jewish identity? I am very Jewish is how I usually put it. My family is Sephardic Jews. So with Sephardic Jews, there aren't the divisions of reform, conservative, and orthodox. So, But my father was very observant. So I grew up in a very observant Jewish home. And what, one of the things that I've always loved about growing up so Jewish was my father loved the holidays. He would regale, and at Pesach, he would sit back and say, let us all sit back and enjoy. We're not slaves anymore. We are masters. We are grateful to God for all we have. And I learned from my father, which is a very Jewish thing, because the first prayer of the day, typically for us Jews, is animode, I am thankful. Mm-hmm. My father was a, would express gratitude and thanks with everything, all the challenges that we had and all the blessings that we were fortunate enough to have. And uh, life was very difficult because I come originally from Egypt. Uh, My father believed in being the wandering Jew, so we kept changing countries from place to place to place, but very Jewish. And I embraced Judaism. When I first started doing work with past lives, I was very concerned because I wasn't sure, is that acceptable in Judaism? What is it? Only to find out that in fact, in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, there are even terms that not only acknowledge but describe and explore past lives and why a soul will choose to come and reincarnate over and over, lifetime after lifetime, to do tikkun, which means correction, to grow and bring more light to this world. So I'm very Jewish. What I love about Judaism is that it's so practical and down to earth. And uh, yet so amazingly uplifting. Well, it's very beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So there are lots of questions that even a brief introduction to your biography um, elicits, I think, in the mind of many listeners. But before we ask the questions, I want to give you an opportunity to describe your work. So I want you to start with the categories of your work that are most likely to be unfamiliar to Jewish listeners or downright challenging or off-putting based on their their preconceived notions? Okay. Uh, From the very beginning, I'm trained very formally scientifically. I have a PhD. I did research during my training and so forth. So everything was very kosher and very proper in my training as a psychologist and When I started doing therapy, therapy is interacting verbally uh, and giving consulting and counseling to people who are depressed or anxious or troubled or confused in order to help them deal with life more effectively. The primary thing that was missing 
sorely in my training was access and understanding of the unconscious. The unconscious is those aspects of self and our experiences that we are not consciously aware of. Most people are not aware of why they are doing what they're doing, why they have the feelings that they have, and how to manage them or change them. When I started looking into aspects of the unconscious, that's what opened all the doors to begin to do work that was really ultimately pioneer work. You know, going beyond the regular therapy. Forgive me for interrupting, but uh, I, yeah. I, my first reaction is actually yeah. surprise, because in my yeah. mind, traditional Western psychotherapeutic training is a lot about the unconscious. Maybe psychoanalysis has that approach. Not regular psychology, not academic psychology, not typical psychology or psychotherapy as it's described and has been for decades, for the last 30, 40 years is cognitive behavior therapy. You define the problem and then uh, you talk about it a little and it's only like a few sessions. Uh, the other extreme is psychoanalysis, which uh, I, I don't know the kind of language I can use here necessarily, but I've always considered psychoanalysis as being not an acceptable approach because it's not practical enough, it's not helpful enough, and people are not given tools to make the changes realistically, you see. So I've never... So it's not therapeutic enough is what you're saying. It's a, I've it's, never cared for it. I've called it uh, mental masturbation because the person goes over and over and over certain things in the session. It's aspects of the unconscious, but it's never systematic. It is never helpful that I have known or experienced. So and I yet, and yet it, it does tap into the unconscious in, in at least in theory or in aspects of, of, the, of our personalities that interest you. It may, but it's not practical or useful because... Of it's the not applicable enough? No, no. I think it's very important when someone comes in and they have issues or problems that a therapist needs not only to get them to understand what's going on eventually, but also to give them tools so they can manage their lives on their own. They don't have to sit in the chair as a patient for months, for years. No, 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 no. You know, regular therapy is very helpful to have someone who will sit there and hear you out and be supportive. But it's not useful enough and it's too lengthy and it's too expensive. So my desire was to learn different approaches and different tools that would get into the nitty gritty, that would get into the depth, that would get into the unconscious and the conscious and then give tools to the person to begin to manage their life more successfully. So tell us a little bit about some of these tools that you, you refer to as pioneering and, and, and perhaps even most importantly for us, because they're pioneering, they're going to be probably unfamiliar to most of us. Okay, let's start talking about uh, the unconscious just for a minute. The unconscious is uh, the epitome of um, the unknown communicating with us. We think that what we are aware of is all there is, which is sad. It's so sad. The unconscious determines 95 to 98% of our behavior. And re in the last 10 or 15 years, this has been demonstrated with functional brain MRIs. So in other words, those of us who have sought to understand the unconscious and incorporate it in every conscious life have been aware of that. But 
now it is science that is also supporting this. And of course, the biggest area is dreams. What has never failed to amaze me is when I started working with dreams is I would ask people, uh, you know, what did you dream this past week? Or can you share any dream? And they'd say, no, I haven't dreamt. You know, I, I don't dream, mm-hmm. which is, of course, ridiculous because why? Every single person dreams five to eight dreams every single night unless they're taking medications that dampen the dreaming experience or they are uh, consuming a lot of alcohol and that will tend to dampen it as well. Otherwise, every one of us has between five and eight dreams every night. Can you imagine the wealth of that information that is coming in? The unconscious is communicating with you, about you, for you, and to give you guidance and support. So once you begin to note, and in my book uh, on dreams, the title of the book is Dreaming on Both Sides of the Brain. Once you begin to note your dreams, and just use some very simple tools to write them down or dictate them as soon as you awaken. You begin to make sense out of it. It's like those massive doors into the unconscious start opening up. So you begin to understand and not be alarmed or in fear. Let's say I dream my mother was in a car accident and just died. That was the dream. Uh, so people become very frightened. Oh, my God, I dreamt my mother's going to die. Is she going to die? Is she going to die? No, 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 don't take the unconscious literally because the language of the unconscious is symbols. So whatever mother represents in my waking life, that's what may be coming to a death or an end. It doesn't mean that my mother literally or physically will be ending her uh, physical life as a human being. You see this, what I mean? This, this um, symbolic uh, language of the unconscious Yes. Still, still keeps us kind of in the realm of, I think, our popular understanding of psychoanalysis, doesn't it? Freud really opened the doors, the gates, the, the massive gates into the unconscious by starting to explore dreams. However, uh, the interpretation of the dreams is often either it's about um, anger or it's about sex. You have a dream that you're having sex with your mother. Oh, it's terrible. This And it's interpreted very negatively. And what my guides have inspired about dreams and how to interpret these things is what is intimacy? What is sex? One body entering another. Therefore, it is the epitome of closeness. That one person entering another is one person getting very close to another. So your unconscious may be saying, you need to do some work to get close to mama. And not necessarily because you want to have sexual intercourse with mother. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other part is someone like Carl Jung. You see, whatever I do flies in the face of all the accepted approaches. You know, I am very politically incorrect, by the Mm -hmm. way. Always have been. But for example, I have a dream guide who came to me and comes every time I work on dreams. He has always trained and guided me in look at the dream in a very simple, down to earth way. What is the dream really saying? There, you, you dream, and that's a very common thing. You dream that you're running down the street and you're being pursued by a big, dark figure and you're terrified. And that keeps recurring. It's a recurrent nightmare. First question is, what are you running away from in waking time? And how about turning around 
and taking a look at that which you're running away from. That's all. And maybe as you begin to make the connections you see, because your dreams are always related to whatever is uppermost in your waking life. And the metaphor that my guide has offered is really, uh, it's outstanding. It's like today's newspaper. Today's newspaper will always deal with current events. So your dream deals with current events. But also like a newspaper, there is a commentary in a newspaper. There is an editorial that will comment, uh, you know, what the president is doing is great or what the president is doing is not. And it compares to what has happened before. And this is what the advice that needs to be taken or the recommendation that needs to be given, you see. That's exactly what happens in the dream. So you've made reference uh, a couple of times now to your guide. Can you can you uh, tell us who that is or, or what that uh, function is for you? Oh, good heavens. Okay. I work with guides and angels of the light, okay, and have done so for over 30 years. My, uh, I was working with a patient one day. And, and at that time, I was already, you know, clinical psychologist, therapist, etc. We, we were working on one of her dreams, and it was very constipated, uh, uh, you know, trying to move to uh, make the connections. It wasn't flowing. And um, I love doing therapy. This was very unusual. All of a sudden, I heard the voice in my head. By the way, I don't hear voices. This was very surprising. I heard the voice in my head say, why don't you try it this way? And I did. And everything fell into place. The woman left at the end of the session. It was, it became clear. She got the guidance. She got the tools. And then I locked the door and I said a prayer because I pray regularly. I'm very Jewish. I say the Shema, the protection. And then I called on that voice. I said, who are you? Are you from the light? Why are you here? And what he said was, I have come to help you with dreams. He gave me his name. I do not share his name. And he said, anytime you're working on dreams, I will be there. He has been with me for literally tens of thousands of dreams since that time and has helped me make sense out of dreams. Meaning he, that um, he, he, he uh, points out a, a line of inquiry, for example? Yeah, inquiry, but also it's like uh, to make sense out of them, like giving the metaphor of a newspaper. What's wonderful about my guide is he keeps it simple and down to earth and yet profoundly effective and healing. And I love that. So you also made reference to uh, angels of light. Uh, is this a synonym for the guide or is it, uh, is it a different source of, of inspiration and understanding? The divine created the world, us, and angels as well. And we live in a world of duality. There is up, there is down. There is male, there is female. And there is dark and there is light. So when we call on angels, it's not wise. And this has been inspired to me. It's not wise to just say, I call on angels. They might be fallen angels. We don't know what they do. So the best thing, because God is love, God is light. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever. If you believe in divine energy, divine energy is loving and brings light and delight into our lives. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, 
Check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I'm going to move the conversation a bit to some of the a kind of um, a sociology of your work, which I think, well, I personally am very curious about. Do you think there is a substantial resistance among many, many <laughs> Jews to your approach? And then, and then I'm, that's I'm very curious, true, maybe, by the way. That's very true. You do yes, find I the do. resistance. Yes, yes, I do. And and now I want to ask you. So so I wanted to find out if you agreed with me because I I think most of my friends would probably f- be resistant, and I myself am a skeptic. And I find, uh, if I'm honest with myself, I find that my my uh, intuitive response is a resistant one, and um, and it's important to recognize it. And then I want to ask you. Where do you think the resistance comes from? Because we have been uh, raised and trained, uh, especially, you know, Americans here, uh, with left brain approach. What is rational? Get a good education, uh, become a scientist, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, a business person. And all of that is wonderful. It's fine. These are excellent tools. We have not been raised with, look at how you feel and why might you feel that and what can you do about it at a deeper level? The typical Jewish approach is very skeptical, with all due respect. And also, you know, uh, historically, historically. We have maintained the Jewish identity for over 3,500 years. And the Jewish identity involves, for certainly for males and to some extent for females, to read, to read from the Torah, to do bar mitzvah, to read. Well, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of um, Bruce Lipton. He wrote a book, The Biology of Belief, Okay. And he did seminal work in research at the medical school uh, uh, in the University of Wisconsin and at Stanford as well, that we change our DNA. We change ourselves based on what we believe. DNA is not just a stamp that is there forevermore. We change it all the time. So imagine at the hundreds of generations that have gotten this basic education to read compared to the other uh, populations, whether they were Roman or Persian or Greek or or Muslim or the other populations, where only the intelligentsia, only the people who were wealthy or the priests or the nuns who learned how to read and write. The rest of the population didn't. So Jews, for better or worse, and because of having had the Torah, we have really developed and have grown different levels of our DNA. Also, in order to survive, we need to be very aware of our environment, very aware of what's going on, and to try and have as many uh, goods, wealth, connections as possible in order not to be helpless and powerless and, God forbid, God forbid, go through another Holocaust. 
So you think that the way we've developed as a people and the and the tendencies we've had have have also um, promoted a kind of uh, resistance today to the to the approaches that you bring to understanding the soul and the self. Yes. So I read your book repetition about um, mm-hmm. uh, past life regression, and I understand mm-hmm. your your argument to be the following that we human beings, we need the repetition of life lessons that have shaped our personalities in order to learn from those lessons mm-hmm. and to grow as human beings. And you understand that the scope of that repetition, not to be merely the length of a single lifetime, such as most of us probably assume, but rather you understand the scope of that repetition to include the accumulated experiences of multiple lifetimes and that you kind of treat that um, that multiple uh, experience as the textbook from which we can discern patterns and learn the necessary lessons because, and you say this in your book, I think it's beautiful, it's true, that we're slow learners. We need a lot of experience before anything really makes sense to us. And um, and so you bring many case studies and show how past life regression sessions tell stories that help uh, people understand themselves. And then once they understand themselves in these patterns, they can they can begin to work to move past recurring difficulties and challenges and make make healthier choices. Is that is that a fair is that a fair summation of your book? It is. But you see, there is a very important piece that I want to add. Good, what good. you did is you summed it up well. Okay, we have all those experiences and we need them. It is to look at human behavior out of the context of judgment or diagnosis. And uh-huh. I have diagnosed thousands of people as a clinical psychologist. I've done testing of children and adults. I've done many, many things in psychology. But it is judgmental. Why is a person diagnosed as bipolar? Why are they bipolar? Because they have a brain imbalance. Why do they have a brain imbalance? Because they are bipolar. Why are they bipolar? Because they have a brain imbalance. Do you see how circular it is? I am a pioneer. And pioneers don't usually fit. And we don't usually accept everything that is typical. So I'm not a typical psychologist. I'm not a typical therapist. And what was bothersome to me was, uh, let's say the daughter of an alcoholic keeps selecting one disturbed person after another, one addict after the other. So what have we said? Oh, well, she has low self-esteem. She keeps making errors. Uh, She keeps selecting poorly and badly. And my guides have inspired after years of doing work with that kind of a population. No, it is not selecting badly. On the contrary, at an unconscious level, we make those choices in order to feel today what I felt then, let's say, growing up or in a relevant past life, so that I bring it to life in the present to have the opportunity to change my reaction now. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of words that we repeat over and over. And uh, thank you for pointing out the the non-judgmentalism because that yes. was uh, that came out very clearly in your book and yes. and I understand how important that is to you and it, it's it's very resonant and I mm-hmm. want to ask you about it, it, the the commitment you have to non-judgmentalism mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. strikes me as very divergent from traditional religions. You speak of God as you understand God in the book as yes. non-judgmental and loving, but yes, but in 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 the world of the religions that dominate you know our lives at least in in uh you know in their textbook examples or in yeah, in, in yeah. Uh, the way we experience them socially god is one of the major functions of god is to is to judge is to is to establish right from from wrong and and to and to impose consequences now, all of those things are very judgmental and it seems that you yeah. break you break very radically from that is that is that I, fair you're absolutely right my father's faith was unshakable. We had so many challenges and difficulties and whatever. He would always say, thank you, God. Thank you. I thank you. Okay. I got that and learned the unshakable faith. But in, but in having unshakable faith, also, I, I couldn't swallow that that wonderful God would create someone who came into this world blind mm. or with really serious intellectual limitations, serious physical limitations. It doesn't make sense. It's not a loving God. However, the the way that I have begun to understand it, and now I'm totally convinced, and my guides and angels have, have supported this, is that at the time of creation, the divine created individual sparks of light and, and gave uh, each spark is a soul, and gave each soul the gift of free choice. So when a soul chooses to come in and let's say have a hearing problem, what might the issue be? It's not that God judged this person to, you know, to be disabled, but rather the soul chose to come with this issue, this challenge, because perchance the soul may have may have given or lent a deaf ear, let's say, to those who were poor around him or to his wife or children. So he's come to be on the receiving end of what he has put out. When he begins to experience that deafness and despite it all can be kind, can be generous, look at how you transcend the problem. And you're saying that the it's not a matter of divine justice, it's a matter of the no. soul's choice to seek yes. out this kind of uh, remediation, I suppose, for lack of a yes. better word. I would be very afraid to live in a world with the judgment of God. So I, I'd like to close with, with a question from the skeptics. Um, yeah, okay. It has to do with the, the verifiability of these experiences, um, uh, many of which you cite in your book. I mean, they're fascinating stories of people who enter into a session with you uh, and, and engage in a past life regression. And then there's, there's a, a story often, not always from a previous life. Sometimes it's from an earlier stage in, in this life. Not and either or, it's always both. Both. Fair okay. enough. Thank you. Thank you okay. for the correction. But okay. from from the skeptic's perspective, it's it's hard to get past the fact that there's no there's no verifiability with respect to whether or not this uh, image or story uh, that the the client or patient conjures was genuinely uh, an experience lived in a previous period, or whether or not it's the unconscious in a more of a dream, uh, creative way coming from the mind so, of the person. So. Right. So my question to you is the following. Does it matter if it really is past life regression or just 
dream interpretation or something similar to it? Does it really matter? It matters in your view to begin to realize the grandeur, the depth, the richness of all that is possible. If we only look at the current life, it's so narrow. It's so, it's so small. It ends so fast. It doesn't make sense. However, if a person says I, it's not proven, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So if people got better, as far as I was concerned, hallelujah. Thank you, God. They got better. They feel better. Okay. And when they begin to explore other lifetimes, even if they only look at them as stories, you know what? It doesn't matter if they utilize that information to be more at peace or feel more accepting of what they're doing and have some guidance about what to do to enrich and deepen their life now. That's fine. I don't care what you call it. You see, which gets which gets to the spirit of your pioneering work of moving yeah. beyond psychoanalysis because you're interested in the applicability for for improving people's lives in in practical and, and measurable ways. Bravo, you summed it up. It's a very eye opening and, and enriching worldview. Uh, are you? Let me just add one little piece. You're familiar with Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, yeah. which has been around for thousands of years. I got, I had the privilege of knowing a world-renowned Kabbalist in Israel who died at the age, they say, of 113 or 120, something like that. And I got, I met with him a number of times, which was very unusual because it was very difficult to ever get a session with him, you see. People would wait six months to a year. And once we, we had just two, two, three sessions, he started referring to me as the woman who speaks with the angels. He could see what I physically, with my physical eyes, I don't see angels, but I hear them in my head. I sense them. I communicate with them. He was a world-renowned Kabbalist. May his soul rest in peace. So the stamp came from him more than anything. Mm, I see. I see. You I see? understand. And it is in, indeed the case that the Kabbalah um, does refer explicitly to the uh, reincarnation of souls. So there's yeah. a there's a Jewish Gilgul cultural yeah. yeah yeah the Gilgul that's mm-hmm. right the Gilgulim mm-hmm. the, the the reincarnations it's a it's um, it doesn't necessarily um, diminish American Jews' skepticism such as it is but it is part of maybe our tradition. Time. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's time. time. That's right. <laughs> yes, yes. To just open, open, uh, open their minds, open the possibility, and begin to explore it and see if you can use it and if it's useful for you. In other words, don't judge it and dismiss it. Explore it. That's all. Fair enough. Well, on that yeah. note, um, Dr. Cohen, I want to thank you for the time, the pleasure of, of making your acquaintance and for um, teaching you. us so much. Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. It was really a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.